Well, there is a very interesting doctrine that is taught by several different church groups. It's interesting because there's no scriptural support for it, but it is a dominant teaching in certain groups. And my purpose in even mentioning it today is because it relates specifically to a New Testament book that we are going to begin uh, to look at today in just a few minutes. Uh, but the, the doctrine is called the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, it's uh, taught by a number of different church groups. It was first suggested in the early centuries of church history, and it's been around as an officially stated doctrine for pretty close to 1,500 years. Uh, and the, the, the teaching of this, the perpetual virginity of Mary, is that Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, was always a virgin for her entire life, both before she gave birth to the Lord Jesus and afterwards for her entire life. Now, I won't get into all the theological reasons why they think this is a necessary belief, or we'll never make it to our book study today, but it, but it is totally unscriptural. And I want you to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 13, if you would please. Matthew chapter 13, and I will explain to you just briefly about this and how it relates to what we're going to talk about. Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13. Matthew 13 is a very, very long chapter. 58 verses, and the verses we're going to look at are down near the end of the chapter. So right at the end of Matthew 13, <clears throat> we're going to begin to read in verse 54. Matthew 13 and verse 54. Matthew writes, when he had come to his own country, and he's talking about Jesus there when you look at the context. When Jesus had come to his own country, the place where he grew up, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. That often happens when you're around people that you've grown up with, and people who've known you all their life. And the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching as a rabbi, and he comes to the synagogue, and he begins to teach, and people are impressed with what he's saying. But they look at Jesus and say, I've known this guy all my life. I grew up with him. Isn't he Joseph's son? And Mary and his brothers are here, and his sisters. I mean, we know all of them. So who does he think he is? That's basically what they're saying. And so Jesus says to them in that great phrase there, that last paragraph, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The Lord Jesus Christ said those famous, those famous words, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. In other words, a prophet gets honored everywhere, except in the place where he grew up. Uh, very, very interesting, and, and undoubtedly there's an element of truth to that. But notice in verse 55, as they are criticizing Jesus, whom they've known their whole life and known of him, is this not the carpenter's son? Yeah, Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, or Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, plural, are they not all with us? So who's this guy think he is? And so Matthew here lists four brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and at least two sisters, because it's in the plural. And so, of course, folks who are the proponents of the perpetual virginity of Jesus are, are quick to point out that the Greek words for brother and sister can also mean cousin, which is correct. That is true. 
But that would be a very strained understanding of this passage because Joseph and Mary are also mentioned. And why would the gospel writers, and by the way, all of them mention Jesus' brothers in several places, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even in Acts chapter 1, it's, they talk about Mary and Jesus' brothers all being together there. Well, why would the gospel writers all mention this as Jesus' brothers in connection with Mary? If they were cousins, why, why would they talk about them? Well, here's, here's Joseph, and here's Mary, and here's, here's all their nephews. Uh, that, that, that wouldn't even be, that wouldn't make any sense. So, so apparently, jo, or Mary and Joseph had four more sons, at least, after Jesus, and at least two daughters, plural, Joseph is never mentioned in any of the other places other than here, and so we can only assume that he has passed away by the time Jesus began his public ministry. But the mother and the brothers of the Lord Jesus are always mentioned together in numerous places in the Gospels and in Acts chapter 1. Now Mary, as you know, was a godly, dedicated, committed follower of the true and living God, and she became a dedicated follower of her virgin-born son, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, Mary calls God her Savior, which would only be true if she needed one. And she was a faithful part of the New Testament church in Jerusalem, we see from Acts chapter 1. One of her sons that are listed here in this passage, James, became the leader, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he was the author of the book of James, which you are well familiar with. And another son, which is listed here, Judas, was also a well-known early church leader who wrote one of the shortest letters in the New Testament. And, it is, and that is the short letter that we would like to study for several weeks. In our English Bibles, it is called Jude. If you would turn there, please. It's right in front of Revelation. If you find the book of Revelation, just back up. It's easy to miss because there's only 25 verses. It's a short little book. A very short letter. And we're going to spend a few weeks looking at this, working our way through this short letter to Jude. The Hebrew name Judah was a very common and popular name. No doubt because, first of all, of the tribe of Judah... And then also because one of the heroes of the Maccabean revolt was named Judah. You may remember when we studied the book of Daniel, we talked about the Maccabean revolt. Uh, And uh, you may remember that uh, wicked, ungodly Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, who... Who, uh, who slaughtered a pig on the altar and desecrated the temple. And the Jews rose up in rebellion against him. And, and this family called the Maccabees, or they were nicknamed that. That name means the hammer. And uh, they were called the Maccabeans. And they carried out guerrilla warfare against Antiochus Epiphanes. And eventually took the temple back and took Jerusalem back. And, and uh, Antiochus died a very horrifying death on his way uh, to, to, uh, to a battle one day. But, but one of the great heroes of that Maccabean revolt was named Judah, or Judas Maccabeus, they called him, around 165 B.C. And so there, there were many, many people in the day of the Lord Jesus who were named Judah, or the Greek form would be Judas, and the English form of the name would be Jude. Uh, in fact, there are at least eight men in the New Testament that have that name. It always sounds a little awkward to us because anytime we say the word Judas, we always think of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But it was a very common name, uh, like, like John or Jim, or, or, or names that we see all, all of the time here. Very common name, and there were at least eight people in the New Testament with that name. And here in our, here in our uh, English Bibles, we have the letter Jude. Here, the author of this letter being one of the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> It appears that Jude wrote this letter in the late 60s, not, of course, 1960s, that many of us remember, but the late 60s of that first century, probably after the death of Peter and Paul, but before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So it's one of the later New Testament letters, and the reason why that makes any, that makes any difference, the reason why that is significant, is because of Jude's subject matter. He says in his first words that we'll read here in just a moment that he intended to write a letter about the blessings of salvation. But instead, he ends up writing about false teachers who have infiltrated the churches. These false teachers are what we would call apostates. Those who have fallen away is what the word literally means. Those who at one time said they believed in the Lord Jesus, but now they have turned their backs on God's truth. And Jude reminds his readers of many Old Testament illustrations that we're going to explore as we come to them in the book. He uses many terms and phrases that grounded believers should understand, so we'll explore them. And his central challenge to his readers is to stand up for Jesus, to stand up for the truth, to battle for the truth, to live in the truth, to abide in the truth, and given the state of our world and certainly the direction of our country and what we believe is the arranging of the world in preparation for the coming of the Lord Jesus, Jude is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. There are only 25 verses in this little letter. We're going to read the first four of them today and then we'll unpack what the scripture has for us. So Jude, no chapters, just verses, Jude 1 through 4. <clears throat> Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to divide our thoughts into three categories, Jude's identity, Jude's audience, and Jude's challenge. First of all, Jude's identity. Notice in verse 1, Jude calls himself the bondservant of Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is doulos. It's used 127 times in the New Testament. And it literally means a slave. The early English translators of the Bible had a terrible aversion to slavery for good reason. And so they tended to translate doulos as servant or bond servant rather than slave, but literally means a slave. Uh, the bond servant of several hundred years ago in, uh, in, in British cultures uh, was bound by a contract to work or serve a master. 
And so that was the closest thing to a, a doulos that they could come up with without actually being owned and, and being a slave. And so that's the way they often translated the word. But Jude says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In the first century, slavery was very common. Many historians estimate that, that in the Roman Empire, there were possibly six million slaves. Slavery in that day had virtually nothing to do with race. Slaves were prisoners of war who had then been sold by the government uh, to people to use as slaves. There were people who had been kidnapped by raiders and they were sold in the marketplace as slaves. Some families became so desperate for money that they sold their children rather than all starve to death. So slavery was woven into the fabric of the Roman Empire. It was very common. There were literally millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. They had all kinds of jobs and professions, but they were owned by someone. They had no rights. They could be resold, rented out, or beaten and killed at the owner's discretion because they were slaves. Jude doesn't identify himself, interestingly, as the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't start out and say, you know, I, I grew up with our Savior. He slept in the bunk right over me. All our brothers were there. I could tell you stories about him as a kid. Yeah, yeah, I'm Jesus' half-brother. He didn't begin that way. Actually, neither did James. When we looked at the book of James, James didn't start out that way either. He didn't introduce himself as the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. James also said, I am the slave of Jesus Christ. Jude, not as well known as James. And so he says, I'm the brother of James, which everyone knew as, the, as, as the, probably the lead elder in the church in Jerusalem. He said, I'm the brother of James, but I am the slave of Jesus Christ. I have no rights. Jesus Christ owns me. He can do whatever He wants to do with me. He is my God. He is my Savior. He died for me. He suffered for me. He arose from the dead for me. He is, heaven, he is in heaven interceding for me. He bought me, and I belong to Him. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Hold your finger here for just a moment and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Some of you know these verses. Some of you may not remember them. Uh, they are excellent verses to focus on exactly what we're speaking about here. The Apostle Paul uh, talking about living for God and, and living a sanctified life and living a holy life for the Lord Jesus and he says right at the end of 1 Corinthians 6, the last two verses, verse 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And notice his phrase, And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Many people say, you know, I know my life doesn't look quite right, but God knows my heart. That's a famous phrase of people who are just itching to live a carnal life. But if you notice what Paul said, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So he said, you, you, you don't belong to yourself, Paul says. You were bought with a price. Jesus Christ died for you. He saved you. He suffered for you. He rose from the dead for you. He's in heaven interceding for you. He bought you. You are His. 
He said, you, you have the Holy Spirit from God, and you are not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. Very common New Testament theme. And so Jude begins his book, back in the book of Jude. He says, Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. That's his identity. But then Jude's audience. Jude identifies his audience in four ways in this passage. He calls them the called, the sanctified, the preserved, and the blessed. I just want to take apart these four thoughts here. Jude's audience, he said, you, you people out there who are the called, the sanctified, the preserved, and the blessed, he said, that's who I'm writing to. That's who I want you to hear. He said, that's who I want to hear me. The first of all, he calls them the called. The word simply means to be invited. It's used several times to refer to the Lord's people, several times in the New Testament. God called, you answered. You are the called. You, you have heard the call of God and you have responded to it. As Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They respond to my call. Jesus also said that there are some folks, he said, you don't hear my voice because you're not my sheep. You see, being among the called is a blessed place to be because it means you belong to the Lord. You have heard His voice and you have responded to His call. So you are in that group of people that the New Testament calls the called. You heard God speak to you and you responded to that and God drew you in and He saved you. You're called. But then He says you're also sanctified. The word simply means the, the holy ones. You, you are sanctified, notice he says, not by you, but you are sanctified by God the Father. That's what theologians call positional sanctification. Some of you have been with us in our Sunday morning Bible studies. You remember us talking about those things. Positional sanctification, meaning if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been made righteous by God. Right now, in your standing before God, you are holy. Not because of you, but because of what Jesus Christ did and God the Father has sanctified you. You might look at your life and say, well, you know, if you really knew my heart, well, I don't want to know your heart, and I certainly don't want you to know mine. But you know what God does? And you might say, well, God, God knows my heart and I am not holy. I know that. You're not holy right now in this life, but in your positional standing before God, you have been forgiven, and it is just as though you had never sinned. Your positional standing before God is right now. You are holy in the eyes of God, even though in the reality of this life, you certainly are not holy, and neither am I. So, as we told you, some of you guys may remember from our, from our 10 o'clock Bible studies from the last few weeks, positional sanctification means you are saved from the penalty of sin. You're a holy, all your sins have been forgiven. Progressive sanctification, which is where we are right now, where we're living right now. You are being saved from the power of sin as you walk with the Lord and as you grow and as you become more like the Lord Jesus Christ through your obedience to Him. That you are progressively becoming more holy and more like Jesus in your life right now. That's progressive sanctification. And then your perfect sanctification is going to come when we see heaven, either through death or the rapture, that you will be saved from the very presence of sin. So positional sanctification, you're saved from the penalty of sin. 
progressive sanctification, you are being saved from the power of sin. Your perfect sanctification, you will be saved from the very presence of sin one day. And what Jude is referring to here is our positional sanctification. What God does for us at salvation. We are made holy by God the Father through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude says, I'm writing to people who are called, to people who are sanctified, he says, and to people who are preserved in Christ Jesus. What, what a wonderful, incredible blessing. Those who are called and sanctified are also preserved. We call this eternal security. If you're called by God, you've been made holy by God, you will also be kept by God. And I want you to look at the, probably the strongest passage in the New Testament that teaches us that true believers are eternally secure in Christ. Some of you know it already. It's in John chapter 10. But let me review it with you today, if you would. We'll be back to Jude in just a moment. Look at John chapter 10. Probably one of the strongest passages, if not the strongest passage in the New Testament teaching this wonderful truth that we believe that we call eternal security. John chapter 10, we're going to begin to read in verse 22. John 10 and verse 22. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. That if uh, That's what we were just talking about a, m- a moment ago, uh, when uh, the, uh, the Maccabean revolt and Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple, and when the Maccabees took the temple back and took Jerusalem back, they, they re-cleansed the temple, re-sanctified the temple, rededicated it to the use of God, and they, and they had a celebration of that they called the Feast of Dedication. We call it today Hanukkah. That's, that's the word. And so Jesus was basically observing Hanukkah there here, here in verse 22. And it was winter. It always happens right around our Christmas time is when Hanukkah is. And so Jesus was there and he walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, notice it, they surrounded him. A bunch of people gathered around him. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Those verses 27, 28, and 29, one of the strongest statements of eternal security anywhere in the New Testament. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither can anybody snatch them out of my hand. When I was in Bible college long, long ago, one of the fellows that I worked with, I worked at a hospital in there, and uh, he was on the same shift as me, and we both worked in the respiratory therapy department, and, and uh, we would go to supper sometimes together and visit and fellowship a little bit. He was of a church tradition that did not believe in eternal security. So we used to debate eternal security over our hamburger on regular occasions. And he used to say to me, well, I know that nobody else can take you out of the Father's hand, but, but you can take yourself out. I said, you stronger than God? 
Jesus says, my father who has given me, give them to me, is greater than all. I said, I think that includes me and you. And nobody can snatch them out of my father's hand. What a wonderful thought. So, so, when, so when, when Jude writes, you are the called, you are the sanctified, you are the preserved. Praise God. I don't have to try to stay saved. I blow it every day. We, we are preserved in Christ. And then fourthly, he says, you are the blessed. Verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That's where I got the thought, the blessed. You know, if you were to living in the first century and you passed one of your friends or one of your church family and you said, peace and mercy to you, that would be a pretty common greeting that they would greet each other. Give each other a handshake or a hug. Peace and mercy to you. Common Jewish greeting that day. But Jude adds love. Peace, mercy, and love to you. Multiplied to you. The only place in the New Testament with that specific greeting with, with peace, mercy, and love all together. To multiply means to increase to the maximum amount. He said, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. That is, may it be increased to the maximum amount. Great thoughts. God blesses us, you see, every day with a massive amount of mercy. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3 long ago, way back in 600 B.C., he said, God's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So no matter the struggle, no matter the sin, no matter the, 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 the test, no matter the burden, God's mercies are new every morning. And Jude says, I want God's mercies to be increased to you to the maximum amount. Then God blesses us with peace every day when we're focused on Him. You remember Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, as we trust in God, we will sense His peace. Romans 5 tells us, The love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And in the great passage here in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we are walking in Christ, we are blessed every day by mercy, peace, and love being multiplied to us. Belonging to the Lord brings amazing blessing and undeserved privilege, but it also brings us a sobering responsibility. And that brings us to Jude's challenge. Jude intended to write a letter about what he calls our common salvation, but he says in verse 3, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you about our common salvation, meaning our mutually shared salvation. But I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Interesting. He said, I want to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that little phrase is just loaded with implications for us. The first implication is this. There is necessity, meaning that we can't take this lightly. He said, I found it necessary to write this to you. We can't just shrug and say, oh, well, you know, nice people disagree about things. I guess, I guess correct doctrine's good, but, but, I'm, but I'm not going to die on that hill. Well, if we're talking about a secondary issue, then we, we may not want to die on that hill. 
But if we're talking about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way of salvation, that's a hill I will die on. And that's a hill we should die on. In fact, down through the ages of church history, there are millions of God's people who died, literally died on that hill of who Jesus was and what he did. We call it the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ meaning who he is. The work of Christ meaning what he did. And I want you to just turn about three pages back to Second John. The little tiny book of Second John. You go back from Jude, you're going to hit Third John. You go back about one more page, you'll hit Second John. It's another little tiny short book with, what's it got, uh, 13 verses in it. Look at Second John, look at verse 9. The Apostle John says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Don't Let me read that so fast that, that, that you miss that. Whoever does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. They're not saved. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house. Nor greet him. Now, when he says greet him, he doesn't mean say, oh, hey, good morning, how are you? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that greeting of faith and love and mercy. And, and, and hello, my friend, how can I help you? What can I do for you? He says, don't even do that because he said you greet him, you're sharing in his evil deeds. He says, don't, don't, don't give any kind of assistance to these apostates who are not teaching the truth about the person and work of Christ, about who he is and, 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 and what he did. There are other doctrinal issues that are vitally important as well. But we cannot take doctrinal purity lightly and just say, well, I just don't want to rock the boat, you know. I mean, no, Jude says there, there is necessity in this challenge. We, we can't take it lightly. Then the second implication I see there, there is energy. Meaning that we are to battle vigorously and energetically and tirelessly to maintain pure doctrine. The word contend is translated from a Greek word agonizomine, and you can hear in that our English word agonize. It means to struggle, to discipline ourselves, and, and to, to train as an athlete, to, to compete against an opponent. It's like you see the guys in the Olympics running as hard as they can run, straining at that last moment to get across the finish line. Those wrestlers who think they're about to get pinned and they're straining for all they're worth to, to try to get out of it. Those shot put throwers, those javelin throwers who spin around and throw those things and just heave it with everything they've got. That's the picture of that word contend. Agonizmi. I, I agonize. I struggle. I, I compete. And in our text here, agonizomai is preceded by a little preposition called ep, which, 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 which gives it incredible intensity, which why it's translated earnestly contend. Battle vigorously, energetically, tirelessly to maintain pure doctrine. <clears throat> then the third implication I see in that little phrase is that there's focus, meaning that, that our, our energies are to be aimed at our own local church first, and then in a greater sense, our fellowship group, the folks we associate with, the folks we, we support. Jude says certain men have crept in unnoticed. Well, crept into what? Well, they've crept into the churches. They are, they are pretending to be one thing, and they have come in under the cover of truth, but they are teaching lies, Jude writes. 
We'll expand a little bit more on verse 4 next week, but, but, but our, our focus, or Jude's focus, is to guard our churches. Now, we may speak out against moral evils in our society. We do that from time to time. But Jude's number one concern is doctrinal purity in our churches. That is the focus of his challenge, certainly in our church and in the churches that we fellowship with. So there's necessity, there's energy, there's focus. And then the fourth implication I see in this little phrase is there is certainty. Meaning that, that, that we, we are not battling for our opinions to be heard. We are striving to maintain purity in the faith. And there is a, there is a definite article there. We aren't earnestly contending for faith. We are earnestly contending for the faith. That was handed down to us once for all. That sense is with finality. That the, that, that the faith was handed down to us with finality. We have the truth about Jesus, His person and work, that was given to us. It was hand-delivered to us from Jesus Christ to the apostles to those generations that followed them. You remember when we've talked about discipling, 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul told Timothy, the things you have heard from me among many witnesses, those same things teach those to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It is that handing down of the truth from generation to generation to generation to generation. And there, there is absolute certainty because we are taking what has been entrusted to us as started with the, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the apostles, worked its way down through the generations for the last 2,000 years. We are taking what has been entrusted to us, we are keeping it pure, and we are passing it on. You see that there is verifiable truth in the Word of God. The authors of the New Testament did not receive this through mystical religious experiences. God, with finality and certainty, delivered the truth to us in writing once for all. So in that little phrase in verse 3, there is necessity, there is energy, there is focus, there is certainty in this challenge by Jude. And the word contend is also a present tense verb form. It's it's continuous action. It's something that you will never be totally done doing. Maybe not the best expression, but you get it. We're never totally done contending for the faith. The battle will always be there. Satan is always trying to sow discord. False teachers are always trying to, to, to corrupt. And so he says in a present tense participle, basically, I want you to earnestly contend for the faith and just keep on earnestly contending for the faith year after year after year after year after year. Because that was the, the faith that was once for all with certainty and finality delivered to us in writing. Jude's identity, Jude's audience, Jude's challenge. And my thought to you this morning is this, as we wind this up. Do you view yourself as a, as a slave to Jesus Christ? If you know Him as your Savior, He owns you. We've been bought with a price. And you know, that's not, that's not, a, that's not a horrible existence, to be a slave of Jesus Christ. We are called, sanctified, preserved, and blessed. This life is not all there is, praise God. We have spiritual blessing. We have undeserved privilege in, the, in this life and for all of eternity. 
As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed. And if you are called, sanctified, preserved, and blessed, you are a slave of Jesus Christ, you should act like that. And it is absolutely essential that we earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us with certainty and with finality. Some of you oldsters like me probably remember the famous pop singer Bob Dylan wrote a famous song back in the late 70s, You Gotta Serve Somebody. A lot, of, a lot of verses to it. Let me just read you a couple of interesting thoughts from a pop singer. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You can call me Terry. You can call me Timmy. You can call me Bobby. You can call me Zimmy. You can call me RJ. You can call me Ray. You can call me anything you want, but no matter what you say, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. I'd rather be a slave to Jesus Christ, contending for the faith, than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Lord, what a blessed thing it is to be in Christ. What a blessed thing it is to be a slave to Jesus Christ. To belong to you. To be owned by you. That you bought us with your precious blood on the cross. As the Apostle Peter said, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And Lord, we're so thankful. We know you as our Savior that we belong to you. And Lord, I am thankful to be owned by you. You know, Lord, that we make this commitment to you to... To do your will and to obey you and to serve you. Sometimes when times get tough and things get difficult and the world looks dark and we don't know which way to go. We may not be so happy about being a slave of Jesus Christ. But Lord, it's the best place on this planet to be. Among the called, the sanctified, the preserved and the blessed. Whatever the trials may be, whatever the challenges may come, however life may look to us in certain times and certain places, may we, Lord, be determined to be pleasing to you. May we accept this role with, with courage and grace and thankfulness that you bought us and we belong to you. So help us, Lord, to stand up for Jesus and to stand up for the truth. And not to be combative and fighting people and arguing about this and that and the other. But help us just to plant our feet in the Word of God. Plant our hearts in the truth of God. And may we stand up for Jesus and stand up for His truth until the day we die. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.